Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associates newsletter audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this week we are going to be looking at volume 12, issues number 18 and 20. Before we get started in the information, let's start with the free thoughts. Sometimes it is the people who no one imagines anything of who do the things that no one can imagine. This is a quote from The Imitation Game, the movie with Benedict Cumberbatch about the story of Alan Turing. The movie epitomizes the real-world example of misunderstood human intelligence that can come along with quirky or unconventional ways of being. Humans often demonize that which is different or misunderstood, leading to bullying or worse. So for me, watching a movie like that or many of the other movies that espouse you know, how human intelligence can rise above and do great things in the context of seeing how difficult it is to be a teenager in this world when you are a little different or you present yourself in a different way. We need to spend time teaching our children to enjoy diversity and differential opinion and also look at everybody as just a work in progress, not something to be demonized. You know, I, I really think this is incredibly important. You know, it is the way of progress and growth on all fronts for us to keep looking at the world in different ways. To disagree is okay. You know, we could all have different opinions about that which we're going through in life or how we act or how we do or how we, you know, just be. But to demonize, that's not okay. You know, Alan Turing invented the modern computer from a place of genius and helped to end the catastrophe of World War II. You know, his group actually broke the Enigma code that turned the war uh, toward the Allies' favor. Pretty incredible. He was a different guy. And, and in the movie, he was difficult to be around as portrayed. Yet, that is precisely what made him so special. You, know, you look at uh, the alpinist, Marc-Andre Leclerc, and you know his work of climbing mountains and being different made him exceedingly special. Conformity rarely produces greatness. And for me, it unusually, excuse me, it usually produces the status quo. And you know, while that's fine, I really love the reality of the world where people push the envelopes and give us greatness. Let's be tolerant of their differences. Number 18 in the podcast realm is one with Dr. Steve Borowitz, and we go through a deep dive in the world of constipation in children and then also look at uh, cow milk intolerance in children. So that might be a podcast you want to listen to if you have any questions regarding milk intolerance or constipation. All right, section one this week, we talked about prenatal vitamins. This has been always been an interest of mine as to why the medical establishment shuns multivitamins for all while absolutely supporting them for pregnancy. It's a bit interesting, but nonetheless, let's just talk about prenatal and teenage micronutrients. Since the early 1990s, the American medical community has recommended prenatal vitamins with folic acid as a supplement for mothers-to-be prior to and during the first three months of pregnancy. The thought was that this synthetic vitamin would be specifically targeting a group of congenital disorders called neural tube defects. These disorders are problems where the spinal cord does not form correctly and causes much childhood morbidity. 
Later on in the 90s, the government went a little further by adding folic acid to shelf-stable foods like breads and cereals with the goal of increasing young women's exposure to the synthetic micronutrient. The initial effect of this program was significant, reducing neural tube defects from 25 to 50% in different studies in different countries. This was a resounding success from a public health perspective. However, as with how cholesterol reduction has not answered the question of coronary artery disease entirely, folic acid supplementation was not completely resolving the problem. What was missing? What were the pieces of this puzzle that were incomplete? It is clear from the literature that the neural tube and many other embryological pathways are established and completed very early in pregnancy. Therefore, it is critical that we provide a mother-to-be with all the necessary macro and micronutrients to allow for those embryological pathways to proceed as nature intended them to. As we performed a deep dive into the literature, it became very clear that the pathways involved in neural tube development are complicated and yet well beyond just vitamin B9 or folic acid, otherwise known truly as folate. The neural tube closes before the first month of pregnancy is complete, well before, well before most mothers are aware of their pregnancy. Thus, it is critical to prepare for pregnancy and not be reactionary. It appears that adequate and functional levels of vitamin B12, choline, and betaine are also necessary for pathways to process and proceed with normal fetal development. Let us look at some specifics. There are cassettes of genes that, when altered over time, are putting mothers and their offspring at increased risk. These genes are called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, that make the metabolism of folate, B12, and choline less functional. This puts extra pressure on the mother to increase her intake to meet the needs of her body based on her gene makeup. For example, a gene called methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase or MTHFR, is involved in folate metabolism. If it has a SNP that changes its function, then a mother would need significantly more folate to affect the same change in pathway development. This means that she is at higher risk for a child with a neural tube defect or other poor offspring outcome if she does not consume enough folate. The genes MTRR, MTR, MTHFD1, DHFR, CHKA, CUBN, and other four-letter, five-letter word, four-letter, five-letter acronyms are candidates for further study in this realm and likely involved in many of these pathways. This is the critical part of this story. Most of us have no clue what our folate, B12, choline, metabolic pathway genes are. And do they have SNPs and cannot make an educated decision without knowing any of this stuff? Therefore, we must make the best guess decisions for the population as a whole based on these unknowns. Going back to the early 1990s, scientists had a good idea to fortify foods and also add folic acid to prenatal vitamins based on the available science. However, as with many things in life, we don't know in advance what the unintended consequences of any decision are. Over the past half decade, there continues to be a stream of evidence that folic acid may not be the best choice to supplement prenatally. Folic acid is synthetic and appears to bind the folate receptor preferentially over natural folate. It also must be metabolized in the liver to the active form, unlike food-based folate. If a mother and or her offspring have SNPs related to 
folate metabolism, then there is evidence that the folic acid may not be metabolized correctly and that unmetabolized form of folic acid circulates around the body, and this does not appear to be good. In a study by Emily McGowan from the University of Virginia presented at the Quad AI conference back in November 2017, her group noted that there was strong association between food allergy in the higher quartiles of unmetabolized folic acid and lower levels of natural folate in the baby's blood at birth, but no, not later in life, pointing to an embryological effect. In another study by Dr. Weens and colleagues in the journal Brain Sciences, they looked at the risk of autism in relation to unmetabolized folic acid levels. They have a nice review of the mechanisms and the current data as of November in 2017. I will say this. It is not settled whether synthetic folic acid is truly a problem. However, there is enough cause for concern and scientific plausibility to make us shift to the natural form over folate of folate over the unnatural synthetic form for all young women of childbearing age and pregnant mothers. We unfortunately will still be exposed to the synthetic form when we consume fortified grain-based foods like bread, cereals, and pasta. As with all things in life where they pertain to our health, when possible, stick to the natural variants that are proven safe. There is zero evidence that we could find that natural folate in prenatal doses is dangerous. Look for high-quality brand prenatal vitamins that contain folate or methylfolate. A few good choices are Garden of Life's Vitamin Code, Prenatal, or Mega Foods Baby and Me. Section 2 this week, Overscheduled Kids. A parent's ultimate goal is to raise a capable, energy-filled, and happy child into responsible, honorable, and successful, depending on what that goal is, young adult. Historically, in the 1960s and 1970s, parents mostly just let their children play while focusing on one instrument and random recreational sports or clubs. They were not pushy. There was ample time for family, friends, and achievement. This attitude was based primarily on the economic times where middle-class jobs were achievable without major educational investments. Fast forward to, today, to today's reality of the over-scheduled parent and child, the knowledge that the higher education and hard work are very necessary for economic advancement in America has borne this change. We all want our little joy maker to experience more and more things in order to be well-rounded and ready to advance in society. They bang the piano on Monday, flip in gymnastics on Tuesday and Thursday, and attend religious education on Wednesday night. Saturday is all-day gymnastics event. Thank God for Sunday. Oh, wait. Joymaker's little brother, Whirling Dervish, has two soccer games on Sunday. You return home Sunday night, sunburnt, exhausted, and knowing that tomorrow is Monday. What have we done? Is it really helping to make the Whirling Dervish the next Pele? Is Joymaker the next Mozart? What about the homework? Yes, they have to do this as well. We know that organized sports and the arts provide a child with frustration tolerance skills development. Random and differing events may hit upon a passion that the child will carry with him forever and could be a career choice. There are many positives to the activities that are undertaken, yet what are the downsides to the volume? Stress for all. Exhausted parents now see that Joymaker is developing anxiety and feels exhausted. She quits gymnastics and says no to everything. Everyone feels lost. Whirling Dervish is struggling in school. Homework is hard to complete and he feels overwhelmed. Dinners are an afterthought, and fast food is the norm. Two legs of the health stool are compromised, nutrition and spirit-mind stress. This is a recipe for disaster. 
Check in with how you, the parent, feel about the schedule. Check in with your child and see how they feel. There are some children who absolutely want to devote themselves to one thing. This is appropriate if they still have time to be kids. Kids should only have one parent installed demanding activity at a time. This is defined as an event, piano, language education, arts, that they need or we need them to do in order to be cultured. This does not include schoolwork, which is mandatory for all to succeed. A better rule of thumb is day free per day scheduled. This is regardless of whether it is parent or child inspired. Plan family meals on free days. Plan game time or reading time as a family. Be present moment with them as they are only 4 to 12 years old once and only once. Do not get a do-over. I found the movie King Richard very illustrative here. Richard Williams, as portrayed in the movie, was singularly focused on his children's success and health to the point that he fought back against a system that was in place that rushes children into the spotlight of stress way too early. He maintained a family-centric, love-centric, work-centric ethos that shunned pride and self-need over the process. He protected his children so that they could be children until the time came for change. The rest of the story is well known. Based on this belief, I find that when I go to kids' events, I choose to watch the games and meets with headphones on to tune out the noise and appreciate the process. At practices, I run or read to make the time productive and not inject my views into their work until. This allows me to be with them after practice in a present way. It allows, it also allows and helps me to stay balanced. Our family has events on three days during the week, sometimes more. Weekend events are intermittent. We are able to find and have home-cooked meals and time together to be spent four days a week. Mostly thank you to my wife for doing all the hard work. I find this to be imperative, and it is such a joy to connect. As children get older, this gets harder and harder with boyfriends and girlfriends and time spent away once they can drive a car, and those activities will change how you're able to pull this together, but you should still try and pull it together. We are all acutely aware of our children and our goals for them. Temper, the, temper your authoritarian, well-meant plans and look at a one-to-one -one ratio of school to playtime. Kids really need to be kids. They will learn and succeed best when they are. In no apparent order, here are some ideas. One, they need to be nourished with whole, natural, and real food. Two, allowed to sleep adequate amounts every night. Three, encouraged and allowed to run and play until tired. Four, loved unconditionally. Five, taught that they are in control of their destiny and mistakes are okay while desire and effort rule the day. Six, encouraged to find their passion and seize the day for it. Seven, allowed to succeed and fail as the events of the day dictate. Eight, believed in. That's a big one. They need to know that they are believed in and loved. Nine, unfettered by chemicals affect neurologic function, right? We don't want chemicals getting into the system that mess with their brain and the rest of their body, but primarily the brain. And number 10, they need to be hydrated with water. Okay, for the parents, you do not need to give up your life for your children. If you follow the one-to-one -one ratio, you should be able to find balance for yourself, which is key to reduce your stress and your health and keep you in great shape. Free time should be existed, should exist for everyone. Balance is always the key to happiness and longevity of spirit between 
couples, families, groups. It's always important. I personally always try, I always try to practice what I preach. Not always perfect, but always trying. Section three, screenagers. From an article by Delaney Rustin regarding the movie Screenagers, we find, quote, what happens when you have an active, involved kid with good grades who wants to play video games for three straight hours a day, every day? A father came to me with this dilemma, she says. He explained, my son is in the seventh grade, plays on two sports teams and is an overall good kid, but I still think three hours is too much time. When he asks me why, I struggle to come up with a good reason, end quote. What are some good reasons? There are many, and I thought this would be a great time to share this dad's question with colleagues who I recently spoke with on a panel of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Each of them works with families around curbing excessive video game use. Dr. Delaney goes on to say, Psychiatrist and gaming addiction specialist Dr. Clifford Sussman makes the point, quote, the more time one spends online, especially in one sitting, the more a process called downregulation causes a drop in the number of dopamine receptors in the reward processing area of the brain. This causes a decrease in our ability to feel pleasure, resulting in a need to seek more stimulation, end quote. Dr. David Greenfield, founder of the Center for Internet and Technological Addiction, says, Quote, although performing well in a major life spheres is often a key contraindication of internet or video game addiction, there are other issues and neurological consequences that may be more subtle, but nevertheless impactful, end quote. He adds, heavy use seems to have several negative impacts, including getting less sleep, perhaps the largest imbalance in our use of time, which we all have limited amounts of, end quote. The remainder of this article is available at the link uh, on the Salisbury Pediatrics website. But for my purposes, you know, when I look at this stuff and you talk about screenagers and kids spending all their time on their screens, it is just an absolute sinkhole for their inability to think imaginatively because they have no more need to think imaginatively when there's passive existence constantly. Right? You can watch Netflix. You can sit on the TikTok videos all day long, YouTube videos all day long. There's so much passive existence. So why do you need to imagine? And imagination is unfortunately a key to building great things in life because imagination helps you think outside the box to go to places unknown or unseen before. So for me, Screenagers is a great way the movie is a great way to gain some understanding and alertness as parents as to what we really want to avoid allowing our kids, you know, a trap for our kids to fall into. So with that, I think each of you should spend some time watching that um, documentary and also getting in touch with what volumes of screen time are useful uh, for humans. All right, so that's the end of issue number 18. Let's move on to issue number 20. With issue number 20, there's also the podcast that was associated with it, which was Dr. Alessio Fasano. This is podcast number 19, which we went deep into the world of intestinal permeability, the microbiome, and multi-inflammatory syndrome in children related to COVID. Uh, he is an excellent, excellent, excellent researcher, spending loads of his career looking at autoimmune disorders, celiac disease, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and he is the world's expert in these spaces. So 
I highly encourage you to listen to this podcast because Dr. Fasano is incredible, incredible, incredible. So section one was a story of the death of my father. So if you're interested in reading about that, uh, I'm not going to read it today, but it is at the Salisbury Pediatric Associates newsletter under the health and wellness tab, and you're welcome to go read about it. But suffice it to say, I miss him, and he was a great man. Section two, Return to Space. The documentary Return to Space on Netflix is a definite must-watch for all parents and their children. There are a few inappropriate words to be careful of at a few points during the stressful Falcon launches, but overall the visuals and storyline are so inspiring and intriguing. Highly encourage it. We all know the genius of Elon Musk, but the story is more about persistence in the face of ridiculous adversity. Every child needs to know that the greatest gifts come from constancy of work, collaborative effort, picking the right team, leading that team, and so much more. The story for me was all about the unification of brilliant minds to complete a goal and never wavering from that goal. The end result is amazing. However, the process is more so. The documentary is all about this process. I encourage you to stop the documentary randomly and discuss the major inflection points with your kids. Section three, it's that time of year again, folks, insects and insect-borne disease prevention. Every spring and summer, many children present to the clinic with tick and other insect bites. While most bites are benign, some are not. This week, let's discuss the bites that occur, prevention mechanisms that you can employ to reduce secondary issues. What are ticks? Well, we know them as eight-legged little creatures that live on animals in the woods and then grab onto us when we come into contact with a plant or animal that they were waiting on or questing, as they call it, for a sucker to pass by, right? That sucker is one of us, where they suck our blood. Ticks can migrate via birds that can carry them miles away from their previous location. They travel with all kinds of animals, but seem to be on mice, deer, livestock, and birds predominantly. Ticks feed only on blood and utilize special mouth adaptations to cut the skin and suck out our blood. They keep from clotting, uh, they keep the blood from clotting by releasing anticoagulants into the blood as soon as it's sucked out. While the amount of blood that a given tick removes from us is minimal and almost undetectable, they have a very nasty habit of leaving behind dangerous pathogenic microbes in our bloodstream. Of note, the most troublesome tick-borne illnesses are caused by bacteria called rickettsia, which causes Rocky Mountain spotted fever, as well as the Borrelia bacterium, which causes Lyme disease, tularemia, babesiosis, tick paralysis, ehrlichiosis, and, and now a problem with an allergy to red meats, uh, specifically beef, are a few other of the tick-borne diseases that we see in the United States. We know now that Lyme disease is coming south. I grew up in the hotbed of Lyme in Dutchess County uh, of the Hudson Valley in New York. It appears that the mouse overpopulation is making things worse. The overpopulation is a result of shrinking predator populations as forest space is reduced in urban and suburban areas. Mice are highly efficient transmitters of Lyme and are responsible for infecting the majority of uh, ticks carrying Lyme in the Northeast. A mouse can have up to 100 ticks covering its ear and face. You can go to Google Images if you want to see what ticks look like. There are some pretty incredible images there. The next troublemaker of insect type is the mosquito, meaning little fly in Spanish. This little annoyance 
follows the same survival principles as a tick by feeding on blood to survive. Unfortunately, it has adapted a flying lifestyle to go along with its six legs, making it vastly more irritating than the tick. The adaptation has allowed it to essentially touch most humans in the world. This matters because mosquitoes can carry pathogens long distances. Unfortunately, as the earth warms, we may see more of these infectious organisms moving north in the Americas. The most dangerous pathogens cause diseases like malaria, chikungunya, yellow fever, eastern equine encephalitis, dengue fever, West Nile virus, tularemia, and the recently seen Zika virus. These pathogens are bacterial, parasitic, and viral in nature. They cause a lot of trouble. The third blood-sucking player in the insect world is the flea. Fleas are small, flightless insects that are up to 3 millimeters long and can jump 50 times their body length and distance. Fleas carry many of the same pathogens as ticks, but differentially cause plague and typhus by carrying their respective bacterial pathogens. Flea-borne disease is rare, but increase in the United States. Prevention is the key to avoiding exposure to these creatures. Here are some tried and tested methods to keep your family free of insect-borne disease. Number one, perform tick checks on your children daily after outdoor play. Check behind the ears, the nape of the neck, the groin, the armpit, and between the toes. Ticks in general need to be attached for roughly 36 hours to transmit the spirochete that causes Lyme disease and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Remove them gently with tweezers by gently pulling and not squeezing so you don't push and leave the head and its contents inside your body infecting your bloodstream. There's a link in the newsletter to a video on how to do this. Number two, mosquito and chigger bites can leave a nasty itchy bump or bumps. Kids will often scratch them open and leave a place for infection to occur. We are seeing a lot of multi-resistant bacterial infections with Staphylococcus aureus causing abscesses from these bites. Prevent them by using insect repellents and long clothing. Also reduce outdoor time at dawn and dusk when these bugs are the most active. And when it comes to insect repellents, if you use DEET-containing products, which is a toxic chemical, spray the clothing before the child puts the clothing on, therefore not getting into their uh, lungs or on their skin. And then use products like Alterain, A-L-L-T-E-R-R-A-I-N, which is made from natural citronella and geranium and cedar oils on the skin directly if you want for mitigation of insect bites. Number three, treat all domesticated animals for fleas if they have them. Prevent flea infestations by having your animals wear flea collars or take flea and tick medicine. Four, use topical products with DEET or oil of eucalyptus 30% to prevent ticks, not for kids under three years of age. See the EWG's website for details. It is an excellent source of information for safe chemical use. Five, only apply repellents of any kind by hand to avoid inhalation of your child. This is the same for sunscreens or anything you're trying to put on the skin. Aerosolized chemicals are not good. End of story. Six, shower after outdoor activity, especially if repellents are used. Seven, I like creams like calendula, aloe vera, and cortisone for itching. Also, rubbing a moist tea bag on bites can help with itching and swelling. The tannins act as astringent. Eight, avoid having standing water in your yard. It's a mosquito haven. Nine, keeping mice and deer away from your living area is a great prevention strategy. Having an outdoor cat, using fences to keep deer out, and treating your domesticated animals for tick prevention are solid choices for your family's health. 
10. Treating your hiking clothing with 0.5% permethrin is an effective prevention strategy if you're going out for days. And finally, pray that you have a lot of bats nearby so they can ping the mosquitoes with the radar and swoop in for meals all night long, keeping mosquito colonies at bay. All right, folks, that's the end of number 20. I hope you enjoyed this latest update from the Salisbury Pediatric Audiocast newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M, and I appreciate your time and listening. And as always, hug those kids. Disclaimer, the information providing this newsletter audio cast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.